Rusty Quill presents. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. swam out into the ocean one time, racing with a friend of mine. I was younger and stronger than I am now, and I swam a quarter mile to a buoy just off the shore. The excitement of the race faded as the sounds of the people on the beach disappeared, as the water grew cold when we passed beyond the edge of the sandbar. Out that far, there's nothing to hear but the steady rumble and shift of the ocean around you. Every salty breath becomes precious as you realize that any mistake, any moment of indecision or hesitation could see you slipping down beneath those waves into the dark. And it is dark, so very, very dark. Today's tale is the story of a woman's journey from a war-torn country to one of safety and prosperity. It is a time of sickness, of death, and the specter of death itself follows her on her voyage in the form of an ugly doll made of plaster. Today's podcast will cover only the first half of the story, and the second half will be available next episode, so make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Links are in the description. Before we start today's tale, I've got a few things I want to tell you about. The first is a book I highly recommend titled Carrion Comfort by my favorite horror author, Dan Simmons. Anybody familiar with the rantings of Alex Jones is probably familiar with the concept of psychic vampires, but uh, in this case, it's actually a real thing. In Simmons' Carrion Comfort, powerful psychic entities thrive by controlling the minds of human beings, driving them to commit horrific acts of violence. This violence feeds the seemingly human creatures, extending their lives and preserving their youth. 
woefully outmatched vampire hunters form a ragtag team to put these monstrosities down for good, even as the vampires themselves enter into a global chess game against each other for control of the world. It's a great book, as much intrigue as it is horror, and I burned through it in just a few days. I highly recommend it. I'd also like to recommend the Counterworlds podcast from Absconder Media. There are three different ongoing stories in the podcast, Rust, Below, and Trust No One. They're all audio dramas with sound effects, music, and great voice acting from a cast of actors with theatrical backgrounds. Each of them have an old-school AM radio drama feel that's super comfy. Link's in the description. Go ahead and check them out when you're done here. If you're looking for something to hold you over till next episode, uh, their library is a good place to start. Now, without further ado, today's story, The Water-Rotted Doll. You know all about the doll now, because everybody knows about the doll. Six years is a long time, and yet still this story is fresh in my mind, kept that way by the constant retellings. I came here today, to this office, telling myself that this would be the last time I sat down in a room full of men to tell about the sinking of the Niobe. To tell of my near death as typing machines turned my breath to ink. And, of course, to talk about the doll. May I have water? Thank you. I was seventeen when the Niobe came through the port of Artis, where I have been living since fleeing my homeland. One of a thousand gypsy faces crowding the alleyways of that filthy fishing hamlet. War had come to my homeland and claimed to my father and brother. My mother had pushed my baby sister into my arms and commanded me to flee. I was not special in this. Another face amongst all the others who begged and scraped and knew the same sufferings. My sister died of a slow sickness the other refugees warded against making the sign at us with their hands. We slept in the cold and wet beyond the barrel fires. I fashioned her a swaddle from rough parachute canvas I cut down from the trees outside town, and, when she died, I buried her in that same swaddle beneath a walnut tree that grew in the churchyard. I placed Amaranth on her grave, and, uh, for all I know, there it remains. No one gave me comfort, but when I went several weeks without developing the cough, I was allowed beside the fires once again. Rare kindnesses kept me alive. I had no skills, and I was too demure to give my body over for coin. Charity came in the form of moldy bread ends and small coins I did not know the value of. Nuns from the mission would enlist me to drag dead men and women off the black-flagged ships that came into port. We wore rag masks packed with used coffee grounds and camphor to keep ourselves from vomiting or contracting sickness. The nuns would pray over the corpses and riffle through their pockets. In the ports, one priest would say his benediction. Then we would drag the bodies into large holes and cover them with caustic powder and a thin layer of dirt so we didn't have to dig any more than twice a day. Any man or woman who worked beside the black flag ships too long would begin to cough after a while, and soon we would find a place for them in the holes as well. I worked this way only when I was most desperate, when weeks of begging turned up nothing and the nights became filled with nauseous shaking. Then I would take the church's bread, but only then. I had one other source of income during this time, a man who had come through the alleys flanked by tall men in short, round hats. 
He was old and mostly blind, and held the younger men's arms like a drunken lover. He picked children from amongst the rabble and would trade them a warm bath, a hot meal, and a night under a roof for just a few hours of their time. Whispers of the man told many stories, the horrid, the sordid, and the blackly hilarious. He passed amongst us as a specter, his long finger picking through our ranks without the aid of his ruined eyes or his companions. Those children would disappear, and usually reappear a day or so later, quiet but happy and clean-looking. Sometimes they brought treats with them, apples or bitter chocolate and the like. On the cold night he chose me, I was more than ready to oblige the man in whatever he desired. My maidenly virtue was worth far less to me than an end of bread, and heavy autumn rain had filled my nook in the alley with dirty black water. I struggled not to cough in front of him, just as I tried not to cough in front of the others. I did not want to ruin my chances of a last good meal in the bed, even if it meant filling this man's home with slow death. He picked me and his companions led me to a small black horse cart that took us into the heart of town. His home was a castle, though he was loath to accept that description when I offered it. I was put into a bath on the second floor where a grey-haired woman scrubbed my body clean with a hard sponge. Dinner was in a room outside the kitchen, lined in grey slate and almost perfectly quiet. His companions led me to his study, where he sat in a shimmering red robe beside the fire. I asked him what he expected of me and he said nothing, but gestured to his companion, who removed the robe I'd been wearing since getting out of the bath. I stood naked before this wizened old man for several minutes before he stood and came over to me. His hands were cold and knowing, prodding all over my body in a way that left me wondering at his intent. He even touched my private areas, but did so with an almost insulting sense of detachment. He finished his inspections and had his men retrieve a long set of needles from a burnished oak box over the mantel. The man poked me in the arms with these, and in my breasts and legs and buttocks. It hurt terribly. All the while, the old man sat beside the fire and watched me with his queer, milky eyes. I cried before the end, but I did not move or flinch. The man dropped the needles in a metal box over the fireplace and then took me to a quiet room at the back of the house to sleep. I did, and deeply. The only off-putting thing about this entire experience, I had all my life heard tales of the strange proclivities that gripped the aristocracy and so was not greatly surprised by the old man's eccentricities, was the doll I shared the room with. It was no garish or extraordinarily curious thing, merely a plaster-headed child's doll no larger than my infant sister had been when I buried her. Plaster dolls, understand, are not like the ceramic or cloth dolls you may be familiar with here, gentlemen. They are a product of the region from which I came, but commonly made of mud or river clay and whatever fabric one can drudge up. But wealthy children often have dolls of true plaster. Plaster, I think, isn't the correct word for it either, just the closest. But this doll shared my room with me for the night, sitting on the only piece of furniture aside from the lumpy straw tick on which I slept, a small stool in the corner. Like all plaster dolls, its features were crude and round, its puffy cheeks had dimples deep enough to fit my thumbs, its eyes, too, were wide and hollow and colored in with paint. It wore a dress of lightly yellowed lace, and its hands lay palm up at its side, at the end of arms as long as its body. The doll had no feet, as those dolls rarely do. Its legs ended in stubs fitted with two rows of stitches I suppose were supposed to look like toes. I didn't mind those things as much as the doll's mouth. 
This was the most subtle feature of the thing, but also the most striking. It crossed from dimple to dimple across its face, without color or detail. A single, thin line made as if by dragging a two-penny nail through the still-wet plaster and then smoothing it with a thumb. You'll be surprised to know I slept especially well, even with that thing in the room. In the superstitions of my homeland, dolls are not to be feared. Most often they are wards against sickness, bad blood, or poor luck. Sometimes they are used to steal the souls of witches and then burned. But there are no stories of dolls harming children, and so I slept well. I believe I would have anyway. It had been so long since I had slept indoors like a human being. In the morning, I was fed again, and then driven out to the port and dropped off with my kind. Again cold and again hungry, but renewed nonetheless by a single night out of the rain. I spoke of the incident to no one for fear that it may never happen again, and I surmised that this is why the other children never spoke of it either. And happened again it did, two more times before I left Artis forever in the hull of the ill-fated Niobe. The second time was a little more than a repeat of the first, and not worth telling of, but the third was peculiar and frightening. I was fed and bathed and brought before the old man again. This time so familiar with the practice I enrolled myself and handed the garment to the old man's companion. This time there were no needles. Instead, the old man stood on a long runner of linen cloth. His companion brought out a shallow basin filled with dark liquid. The powerful stench of it betrayed it as blood, and I grew nervous and began to shiver. The old man shed his own robe and stood naked as I, his great manhood swinging bare before me. I paled and wanted nothing more than to leave the room, but the spectacle transfixed me. The old man stepped into the basin of blood and, muttering, brought a handful up to his mouth and drank deeply. Then he drew a symbol on his chest with his thumb, a blind horizon, if you are familiar with the old ways. I wished to run from that room no less than I had wanted to run from the fire and bloodshed consuming my homeland. But my body betrayed me. I watched in wide-eyed horror as the old man covered his genitals with the blood and then walked across the linen to me. He placed his red hands on my breasts and face and neck and drew the Widsham symbol, the hand of sticks, on my chest. Then the man poured the blood into the fire and squenched it entirely. The stench was beyond imagination. The old man slipped a pair of sandals onto his feet and left without a word. I was taken upstairs to bathe again and then delivered to the sleeping room at the back of the house. The doll sat there on its seat, casting its blind regard over me. I slept and dreamt of things that I will not describe to you. Red horrors is how I think of them, and they are better left to your imagination. I walked through those nightmares as a traveler and witness, and all the while I felt the doll's sightless eyes on my back. It pushed me ever forward from room to ruined room, until I awoke in a hot sweat with the light of the sun shining through the slender window behind the bed. The doll was no longer with me. I made myself scarce when the old man came through with his companions from then on, though when I spied on them from a distance, they never seemed to be looking for me. Children started to go missing from the alleys around then. One day there and gone the next, without explanation. I dared speak to a few others I knew had been hosted by the old man and they confirmed my suspicions that those who disappeared did so after walking in the direction of the old man's carriage. We thought up reasons both with each other and on our own during those long cold nights in the valleys of Port Artis. I heard suspicions of witchcraft from more than a few, 
though those of us familiar with the old ways recognized the symbols of the five, and so I knew that witchcraft certainly was not the case. Perhaps the simplest explanation was that the children were hungry and sought food from the old man. Simpler still, perhaps they had caught the cough and were slipping away to die somewhere where they would not inconvenience any of us. In any case, none of them ever returned, and as the numbers on each alley dwindled, we became steadily less safe from the intrusions of the fouler elements of the port. Slavers came in to drag children away by their ankles for work in brothels or the Slavic mining camps. Pederists crept in to hug children in the night, and carvers came for organs, teeth, and hair from the dead and dying. Escape from artistes became an obvious necessity, but was easier said than done. I had barely enough coin to feed myself, and often enough, not even that. A boy my age could have enlisted if he had teeth and a straight back, or signed on as a deckhand or cutthroat even if he didn't. Without skills or money, my only options were prostitution, stowing away, or waiting for my luck to turn around. Dignity kept me from prostitution, and sense kept me from waiting, leaving only the middle option and the middle option led me to the Niobe. The Niobe was an unexpected arrival in Port Artis. The town's small harbor could barely handle her, and at the time I thought she was the largest ship in all the world. Now I know she was little more than a common freighter, but when I saw her pulled into Port Artis, pushing aside the fishing trawlers, the crabbing skiffs, and the small naval corvettes that lined the jetty, my heart stood still. She was maybe two hundred yards long and a third that high, a grand cathedral of red and brown painted steel floating in glass. Her horn rattled every child in the alley awake, rattled every worm-eaten board in the walls of the warehouses we slept between. Those of us who could still stand wandered forth out of the shadows and looked up at her, the Niobe. We felt as though in a dream, staring up at the majesty of that thing. It seemed wholly impossible that something so large would float, and yet it did. People in fine woolen coats and hats and scarves stood along its railings and waved down into the town. We would find out later that these people were refugees from the war as well, but affluent refugees and so all the more valuable than we few forgotten orphans. But at the time, all we cared about was the great red, white and blue flag hanging high over top the great beast of a ship. We knew that flag meant a long journey across the wine-dark Atlantic to a place where the war wasn't eating the apple of life from the core outward. Each of us bent to making plans to storm the ship by whatever small skills we possessed. The boys who could enlisted with the ship, the girls who weren't poxy or dignified prized open doors with their wiles, and the rest of us climbed mooring lines like rats in the night. This was all after nearly a week of planning and preparation and failed starts, of course. I myself got within a hair's breadth of doing something wholly unseemly with the bearded riveter who smelled of cheap liquor and sweat. I demurred at the last second and apparently saved myself a great deal of embarrassment and regret. The man was a cad, who made promises to a few of the other girls and never made good, even though he took all he could from the poor fools. I fell in with the rats, as we likened ourselves, and made the long hard climb up the mooring lines in the dark of night. The lines were as thick as my leg, mind you but terribly slippery and precariously high. Many of our number fell and succumbed to the cold waters below, or gave up entirely and slunk back into the alley. I have no doubt in my mind that those who remained in that alley died there, or were used up and discarded by Port Artis herself, 
Many undoubtedly found their way into those sad pits of caustic powder, and now lay for eternity shoulder to shoulder with the myriad others who succumbed to the cough. Port Ortiz succumbed to itself in time as well, as I'm sure you know, ripped apart from the inside out by the war and then burned to nothing. We couldn't see the alley from the tiny porthole in the kitchen stores where we'd found a place to hide. The shadows were too dark and the distance too great, but we could see the procession of finely dressed town folk who crowded the gangplank to the ship. I had only a second at the window, jostled as I was by the others. There were five of us in that kitchen store, who I'll speak of in time, and everybody wanted their turn. In my brief turn at the window, I was stunned to see just how many people were crowded onto the thin, bouncing strip of steel leading to the ship. There were all kinds, though all various shades of wealthy. I saw more than a few military uniforms, women in stoles and young boys in jaunty sailor boy outfits and straw hats. But what caught my breath in my chest was a young girl in a wine-colored dress and a smart, lace-frilled hat. She walked with the measured pomposity reserved for the wealthiest of people. Her hand wrapped around the waist of her stately father, a man whom I instantly recognized. The girl herself was maybe seven or eight. But what most drew my attentions was what she carried tossed over her arm like a towel. A plaster doll with dark eyes and a lightly yellowed lace dress. My companions jostled me away from the window in just that moment, and I was not able to truly confirm what I thought I'd seen. Still, I had recognized the man. He had led me to an old man's chambers enough that I recognized his face instantly, even when he'd shaven and dressed in his finest clothes. It was a disturbing coincidence, merely because my opinions of him, his master and that doll had soured appreciably since I'd last seen him. But to me, it was just that. Coincidence, and so I pushed it to the side of my mind and soon forgot entirely. High spirits carried the Niobe across a firm and placid sea for much of the journey. We stopped only twice in the northern archipelagos before leaving the continent of my birth behind for good. Both those times we gathered more people and lost more stowaway companions, who were taken off the ship gently enough. My companions and I hid deep in the back of the food store, daring not to breathe or adjust our bodies for comfort for days while in port. We devised an ingenious system of disposing waste that we were quite proud of, though I won't go into specifics. Leaving Isla Luna at the far end of the archipelago marked the true beginning of our journey. We dared a sundown trip through the ship to look out at the island after we left, only discovering by the time we arrived at the rear portholes that the island was long gone and only bare ocean remained. Cousteau, a boy my age and Rana, who I believed was sixteen, cried as they stood at the porthole, speaking of family and lost loves. I thought only of my sister, dead before her first birthday and buried beneath a walnut tree. I did not weep. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The kitchen staff discovered us three days out of port. Custau and the other boy, I forget his name, were whipped and all of us threatened by the captain. He said he should throw us overboard, but Rana and the other girl... I can also not remember her name, cried and begged for mercy, and so we were allowed to stay. In truth, I do not think the man would have done such a thing, and in truth, I'm not sure what mercy that was in the end. Rana and I were put to work in the kitchen, washing dishes and cleaning and folding linens. We were given only bread and water as rations, but we gobbled leftovers off the plates without shame. The third girl, who's brown-skinned from farm work and pretty for a vagabond, was given the honor of being the captain's bed warmer and we never saw her again. Cousteau and the other boy were sent to the furnace to shovel coal, but Cousteau's constitution didn't hold up and he was returned to the kitchen to work with the women, where he belonged. He tried to make a show of offense when he was around the staff to hide how happy he was. Some of the passengers, the wealthiest of course, would send runners down to the kitchen to have food prepared at their leisure. These things would be made by whatever tired cook had drawn the short straw and then sent up through the ship by either myself or Rana. It was on one of these trips that I happened upon the doll again. I stood in the small but stately room of the girl I had seen on the gangplank. She wore a different dress and no hat, but it was unmistakably her. Her father was not present, for which I was extremely grateful. The girl instructed me to set the tray, it holding a little cake with a purple amaranth and frosting draped down the side on the table, and that's when I saw the doll. Its eyes seemed larger, and so very empty in the dull light of the ship cabin, but it was unmistakably the doll from the sleeping room in the old man's house. I left the girl without fanfare, or even mentioning her strange toy, and dreamt that night of a house of doors upon doors upon doors. All of those doors opened on strange red rooms with no lights and simple straw ticks with linen sheets. I knew in my heart that one of the rooms was mine, and that the worst possible thing would be for me to find it. I awoke in a cold sweat, and was comforted to hear Cousteau and Rana snoring in their shared bunk beside me. As I have said, the mood aboard the Niobe was high when the ship left the continent. 
This was a ship full of wealthy people fleeing a war with much of their money and possessions intact. The hull of the Niobe, in fact, was completely packed with everything from paintings and automobiles to great oak chests full of clothes and crates the size of small homes, carrying God only knows what. I believe the reason we were spared greater punishment for stowing away was because of this high mood. But it did not last, as you well know. They found the first body in one of the nicest apartments in the upper decks of the ship. The Niobe had four decks, mechanical, servant's deck and kitchen, middle deck and upper deck, in ascending order. The captain's chambers made up a small fourth deck where they were situated at the back of the cockpit. The dead man was a resident of one of the apartments directly below the captain's, and so created a much greater stir when he was found. A servant, stopping by to clean, smelled something horrible coming from behind the door. The dead man's wife told him it was nothing, but soon the crew had been alerted and the captain himself ordered the door open. The dead man's wife told him it was nothing, but soon the crew had been alerted and the captain himself ordered the door open. The man had died several days prior, and his wife had been loath to report his passing. This was because the man had also been sick for much of the trip, suffering from a terrible cough. Word spread only a bit faster than the disease though likely much faster if you consider how long people must have been sick before they started dying. The disease was insidiously contagious, especially when given how benign the cough seemed when it started. A few clearings of the throat throughout the day became an irritated throat and the occasional coughing spell. Before a week was out, the infected were coughing throughout the day, sometimes until blood colored their handkerchiefs. Children and the elderly died first. The captain closed off the top floors in an attempt to contain the spread, but he may as well have tried to keep rain from falling on a field. The riotous dinner parties from the first half of the trip became somber candlelit dinners. People prayed and murdered each other out of fear of infection. In the three weeks after the first body was found, the captain hung two men and shot three more. He forwent trials after the first two. Rana came into the kitchen and hugged me so tightly I couldn't breathe. We had been issued our yellow armbands by then, signifying we were among the few uninfected who could still travel the Niobe unimpeded. Many of the servants and mechanics, feared to be vectors of the plague by the affluent on the upper decks, were now locked permanently in the mechanical deck in storage hold. We knew they were starving to death, but we could do nothing. Misha, Orana said, they are raising a black flag over the ship. My eyes went wide, and I held her in turn. She told me she had seen the captain lowering the red, white, and blue flag that had become all our hopes and dreams when we were laying starving in the alley. She said he had folded it and given it to his first mate, who had used it as a funeral shroud for his dead son. We were only two days from port and no longer allowed to dock. Only two or three hundred people were still alive when we dropped anchor outside the harbor, stalled indefinitely beneath the judging eyes of the great statue there. The Niobe store of sailcloth used to wrap the dead for maritime funerals, diminished entirely. By the end, we few survivors were dragging the dead above decks by their arms and ankles. We'd give the body a few sharp swings and then toss it overboard. They would float behind us on the water like breadcrumbs, leading back across the ocean to the death we'd thought we'd left behind. They moved on the Niobe grew murderous. The servants and mechanics, still stoking the fires at the ship's heart, carried out the mutiny of sorts. They could be heard at all hours, chanting in rhythmic unison throughout the bottom decks. 
They burned their dead in the furnaces, and soon the black cold smoke over the ship grew thick with the stench of burning hair and flesh. Rana's eyes became empty, and she spent what free time she had curled up with Cousteau in the bunk. She would cry, and he would comfort her, lying and staring with dead eyes at the bulkheads. I would watch them closely, searching for infection and breathing only shallow breaths to stave off the creeping sickness. We soon had free reign of the kitchen. The head chef had died at the onset of the outbreak, and our paltry few survivors had either joined him or taken to drinking in their rooms all day. We ate like kings and queens and waited to die. It was an extraordinary coincidence that I was attempting to frost a slice of chocolate cake from the freezer with a purple amaranth when one of the captain's men came to fetch me. He needed help with the body on the upper decks, and I was the only open hand to help him carry it. I followed him to a familiar room, where a pitiful figure lay dead on the floor in a wine-colored silk dress. Her tiny hands were clasped over a leather-bound Bible someone had laid on her chest, the form of her face obscured in little dips and rounds beneath a blood-mottled handkerchief. I was glad of that consideration. The doll of all things sat on a chair in the corner silent witness to its owner's last long weeks of painful life. Her father, or I believe it was her father, lay shivering on the room's only bed, a posh four-poster with a red duvet. His face was covered as well, as the crew didn't know when his time would come, and they didn't want someone to see him without his dignity. We stumbled up the stairs with the girl. The ship's priest followed closely behind, stifling a number of throaty coughs with his hand. He stooped to pick up the leather-bound Bible when it slipped from the girl's hands, and then fell against the wall and cried like a child. The man holding the dead girl's legs told me the priest knew her and her father well, in an attempt to explain the outburst. The priest caught up with us just before we tossed the body overboard. He asked us to wait with tears in his eyes and read a passage from the Bible. It was a beautiful recitation, and it seemed he was speaking not over the girl, but over the entire ship. He spoke of the pain of loss and innocence and the burden of faith and the glories to come. The man holding the girl's legs begged me to set her down. Then he stepped away and had to steady himself on the banister. The priest caught my attention and locked eyes with me as he finished his recitations, begging me with his expression not to look away from him. He finished and told us it was okay to send the girl's body overboard, but the man who'd carried her ankle said he couldn't and collapsed to his knees on the deck. The priest patted him on the shoulder and grabbed the girl's legs. I knew that he had lost something inside of himself, something that had held him together as long as he held on to it. I thought while helping him lift the dead girl's body over the railing that perhaps that is what I had looked like when I buried my infant sister in that faraway churchyard. We finished and the priest came to me and held me tightly, saying he wished a child like me didn't have to bear witness to these horrors. I cried, despite myself and thanked him, and he kissed me on the forehead and told me there would be a place for me in heaven. Then he turned and threw the Bible off the Niobe with a great effort. He watched, we watched, the brown speck follow the shimmering purple of the girl's dress until they were mixed with the white caps of the broken ocean and then lost. He looked out after that vanished book for a long time, until finally I left him there with the other man and went down to my rooms and slept. Two days later, that same man helped me throw the priest's body overboard, and the day after that, I had to force the man's body over the banister on my own. The captain called everybody to the top deck a few days later. I had lost track of time and the man who updated the calendar in the kitchen was nowhere to be seen. The captain pointed to the strip of land beyond the great statue and told us we'd have to wait a bit more, just a bit more before stepping foot there. 
He told us we were brave and stalwart and that we would soon be free and safe on those shores. Then he went into his quarters, had a whiskey sour, and shot himself with his revolver. The riots began below decks that night. I was in the kitchen, drinking evaporated milk from a can because I couldn't find any more water. I had selfishly hoarded twenty such cans in a small corner cupboard just in case of emergency, though I had no idea at the time what would constitute an emergency more than what had already transpired. I drank from that can and listened to the people below decks kill each other with wrenches and shovels. We had discovered right after the captain's death that nobody knew where to find the key to the padlock he'd slapped on the lower decks at the beginning of the outbreak. A few of the dozen or so of us still alive on the upper decks had suspicions about what the lower deck people had been eating. They had been locked down there for nearly a month by then, and were extremely energetic, despite the lack of food. But I could do nothing to help them. I could do nothing to help anyone. I was only thankful that I hadn't contracted the cough. Rana and Cousteau were still healthy in that regard as well, though Cousteau now had to resort to feeding Rana like a baby. The events of the past few weeks had simply driven her mad. I decided to take one of my evaporated milks up on the top deck to drink it and stare out at the far harbour. It was an insidious distance from the ship, close enough to tantalize and too far to swim. Rumor held that lifeboats would be shot out of the water by the naval guns on shore as a precaution against outbreak. A swimmer could sneak ashore, but the water was cold and it was a far swim for even a talented swimmer. I had never swam a day in my life. I was not even sure I could do it, and I did not want to discover the truth just yet. Others had tried, perhaps six or seven desperate souls. I do not know to this day if they had made it ashore. Perhaps they did. I was grabbing one of the evaporated milk canisters from the cabinet when the explosion rocked the ship. It knocked me off my feet, and suddenly I found myself sliding across the floor in a peculiar manner. I stood and found the floor unsure beneath me. Then I looked outside the nearest porthole and saw the horizon had gone slantwise. It still took a long moment for me to finally realize we were sinking. Cousteau ran into the kitchen out of breath and horrified. He told me what I feared, that the ship was sinking. I ran for the door and stumbled. He helped me regain my composure and then a second explosion tore through the ship. This so loud my ears started ringing and I couldn't hear what Cousteau was saying to me. Then the ship pitched sharply down to the side and I flew across the kitchen as though I'd jumped down from a high wall. Something struck my head and I woke in the dark, chest deep in water. I screamed for Cousteau and heard him splashing to my right. Then a hand in the darkness. I held my breath and then heard Cousteau shouting my name. His hand wiped across my face and I could see. I had gashed my head on the shelf and the blood was running down into my eyes. My ears were nearly deaf from the ringing. We spent several terrified moments screaming nonsense at each other, Cousteau trying and failing to climb the shells built into the side of the wall. The water was suddenly up to my neck. I realized that for the first in a long time, I could no longer hear the rhythmic chanting from below decks. Instead, there was only the steady rushing of water as though from all around me, and the sound of metal screaming as the pressures of the ocean and its own weight rent it out of shape. I followed Cousteau up the shelf, sideways by design, but nearly completely upward given the condition of the Niobe. We had nearly reached the far edge of the shelf and the door out of the kitchen when a screeching thud shook the ship and nearly tore me off the shelf. I screamed out Cousteau's name for no other reason than he alone was there with me. He looked down at me in horror and said the most terrifying thing I have ever heard in my life. I think we've struck bottom. We made it to the door when the ship shifted again, falling precipitously onto its side at an angle. 
before we could react, the hallway outside the hatch into the kitchen had filled with water. Then we were swimming. Somehow, the electric lights in the kitchen were still operational. I could see their dull glow beneath the water, along what had once served as the ceiling. The door to the hallway sat under our kicking legs, fully submerged. Cousteau looked at me. I believe my face must have reflected the mask of terror covering his. He told me we were going to die, and told me he didn't want to die. I told him I didn't want to die either. I tried to embrace him, but the action made us submerge our heads, and so I let go. We floated adrift in a pocket of air trapped inside the kitchen. The water wasn't as cold as I thought it would be, but I still shivered. There's no way out that I could see, other than trying to swim out through the hallway. And even then, one would have to navigate out of a sideways ship. Cousteau held his breath and dipped beneath the water. His body became wavering and formless as it approached the opening to the hallway. He resurfaced a few seconds later, breathing heavily. Rana, he said. One word and I knew what he intended. I told him he could not go, he must not. Rana would be in a part of the ship that wasn't submerged if she hadn't moved, but he did not know how far the water went on for, if he could even swim that far. He told me he had to try and that he would send back help if he made it. Without hesitation, I grabbed the lapels of his jacket and pulled his mouth to mine. We slipped for a moment beneath the water, and he put his hands behind my head and kissed me back. Then we broke apart and floated up to the surface. He told me that the kiss changed nothing. He still had to get to Rana. I shook my head. That was my first kiss, I told him. I think I am going to die, and I don't want to die without ever having kissed a boy. I wish it could have been with somebody better, he replied. Somebody you loved. So do I, I said. He smiled at that, then dove into the water and down through the open hatch into the hallway, and then he was gone, and I was alone. I thought of following him, of course. I imagined it with a stunning, beguiling clarity. I thought to myself that I would dive down through that door and out into the hallway, that it would not be a far swim to the surface of the water, and we would adventure through the sinking ship, and find Rana and swim to the shore and be safe from war, disease, and drowning forever. Instead, I floated in place, steadily growing more tired from the weight of my heavy woolen clothes. I feared the cold of the water would get worse if I took them off, but after perhaps an hour I decided to take off the jacket and then the skirt. Soon I was floating naked, save for my underwear, embarrassed but glad to be rid of the weight. The time I even finally released my painfully overfull bladder and guiltily enjoyed the temporary warmth. I entertained hope that I would see Cousteau swim up through the entrance to the hallway. I would be embarrassed about my nakedness, but happy to see him. We would laugh off my state of undress, and he would tell me he found a way out. Maybe he would be nearly nude as well, having discovered what I had about the weight of clothes. I did see Cousteau again when the lights started flickering on and off all around me. The ship had grown eerily silent as it finished settling to the bottom of the ocean, even shifted a bit more so that I had to push myself against the wall to get the most out of my air pocket. I was so happy when I saw the shape of him in the gloom that I almost screamed out loud. But something was wrong. Horribly wrong. Instead of swimming up through the hole, he just caught onto the edge of it with the upper part of his torso. I whispered into the dim light remaining in the kitchen, urging him to swim up to me, promising him another kiss, promising he could do anything he wanted with me if he'd just finished swimming up to me. But his sandy hair just swirled in the water down there, like jellyfish tendrils atop his motionless head. I was crying then, I'm sure of it. 
It wasn't the last time I cried during that ordeal, but I did cry. And I cried harder when another human shape brushed past Cousteau and dragged his body down to the hatch and down, down, down into the darker waters at the deep end of the ship. And then dozens of bodies were flowing darkly past the open hatch, their shadowed forms rushing into the depths like trout along a riverbed. I held my hand over my lips and whispered no and no and no and only just realized in time to grab onto something. Anything as that same current carrying the bodies of the dead into the heart of the ship grabbed at my legs and hips and tugged me downward, pulled at me like some vicious predator. My fingers found purchase on the lip of one of the steel cupboards bolted into the wall above me. The current pulled and pulled and pulled and I saw more and more bodies slip by and then the lights were gone and the bodies with them and then the current as well. In time, I tentatively let go of the edge of the cupboard and rubbed the sore parts of my fingers. I knew then that I was the only person alive on the ship, and alive only by accident. That I was a vagabond in foreign waters, unknown to the world. That I would stay trapped in my little air bubble until it vanished or I drowned myself in a fit of madness. And I screamed, and nobody heard me. And I screamed, and nobody heard me. first half of the water rotted doll what do you think how would you deal with being trapped in a sinking ship stuck in a tiny pocket of air and awaiting a rescue that might never come join the conversation and let us know at ws fairy tales on twitter the west side fairy tales page on facebook or email us directly at westsidefairytales at gmail.com we love hearing from our fans and we look forward to hearing from you we've changed our update schedule so look for our next episode on the first friday of january We'll uh, all ring in the new year together with the second half of the Water Rotted Doll. Until then, stay safe out there. Westside Fairy Tales is written, scored, read, and produced by Tyler Bell. All content herein copyright 2017, Tyler Bell. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson, a young crime reporter from Charleston, is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. 
Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning Westside Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlow Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.